Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to Live with Doug. We are thinking through God's Word together on this beautiful Friday. It is a beautiful day, is it not? There's nothing to fear. This is the day the Lord has made. I know. I know there's a lot of signs. You see there's these memes going around where people are some dinosaur, I forget what kind of reptilian figure, but there's all the fires burning around and uh, seems like lots of things are going poorly and there's a lot of sin, a lot of corruption, but it's a beautiful day. I was out this morning walking at about 5.30 and uh, just now I happen to live here in Colorado Springs where I can see the beautiful mountains, but it's beautiful wherever you are as well and the Lord has made all things uh, beautiful. So enjoy it and uh, don't let the enemy gets you down. All right, so we are working our way through Isaiah chapter 6. Uh, good morning, Paul. Good morning, Keith. Glad that you are with us and whoever else might be tagging along here. And we're uh, yesterday we looked at what the vision that Isaiah saw at his call to ministry, and today we're going to see his response. Uh, let's start with verse 8. It says, Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? So let's just put ourselves back in the frame of mind of what Isaiah just experienced. Remember, he, he's taken in this vision to the throne room of God in the temple and he sees the Lord on his throne, high, lifted up. And that's a a majestic view for sure. But then he sees this fiery creature or several of them that are flying like with wings of fire and they cover their eyes with wings. They cover their feet with wings. They're flying. And then there's smoke and the the foundations of the, the, the earth and the temple, they tremble. And Isaiah's first act, his first um, first response to seeing the holiness of God as, as the seraphim thunderously uh, cry out back and forth, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full, filled with his glory. His, Isaiah's response is to pronounce a curse upon himself. Woe is me. I'm ruined. I'm undone. I'm, I'm si- I need to be silent kind of thing. And he says, I have unclean lips, which I was thinking about this on my walk this morning. Uh, we often think of lips as things that we say, and I, I think that's that's likely uh, something that was present in his mind. But also, remember, the Jews uh, were not to eat unclean animals, and you just wonder, uh, was it everything? Was it also the fact that he and others um, had forgotten the law to the degree that they were eating unclean things? Don't know. But he says, I'm, I'm a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. And you remember what happens. Uh, the, one of the seraphim grabs a coal from the altar and puts it on his, on his lips, on Isaiah's lips, and, and singes them, cauterizes them. And the pronouncement is made to Isaiah, your, your sins have been atoned for. So his response is to want to serve this majestic God whom he has seen, and to uh, and the, the one he's been reconciled to. Now, before I get to the, the response here, there's something else I want to point out. So yesterday, uh, one of the comments on the video after the fact, uh, I'll show you the, uh, the comment here. This was by uh, a brother named James Ansel. 
he says there, and I think you can see it, uh, the three times holy, the holy, holy, holy. Remember we talked yesterday about uh, what that means. Uh, the three times holy. Can it not perhaps be the case that the Father is holy, the Son is holy, and the Spirit is holy, therefore the three holy, holy, holy? I was making the point that the repetition is for emphasis. It's a Hebraic way of emphasizing and to raise something to the third degree or the superlative degree, uh, no other attribute of God is raised to that level. And my response to James is, grammatically, I don't think it works. The subject Lord is singular. Isaiah only sees one. So uh, again, going back to the, to the text here, uh, he sees the Lord... And holy, holy, holy is described, is being said about the Lord, singular. So I was pondering this this morning as well and realized that in John chapter 12, and we'll come back and look at this on Monday, Lord willing, John chapter 12, this same passage from Isaiah 6 about the blind eyes and so on that we'll look at here in a minute, this is spoken of referring to Jesus. For this reason, they could not believe, for Isaiah said, and he quotes Isaiah 6, and then John tells us, these things Isaiah said because he saw his glory and he spoke of him. Uh, this is John saying that Isaiah saw Jesus. And I made this point yesterday. When he gets this glimpse of the Lord on his throne in the temple, that's the pre-incarnate Christ that he sees. So John does tell us that it's, it's not the Father who Isaiah sees on the throne, but it's the son. And then at the end of Acts, when Paul is uh, frustrated, he's in, in prison and uh, he's trying to convert the Jews and they don't want to hear it. That's what it says. When they did not agree with one another, they began leaving after Paul had spoken one parting word, quote, the Holy Spirit rightly spoke through Isaiah, the prophet to your fathers. Oops. I'm not sure what just happened there. Must be a glitch. All right, let me get back here. Sorry about this. He quotes from, uh, so here's Paul again saying, the Holy Spirit rightly spoke through Isaiah the prophet to your fathers. And he quotes from the what we're going to see here in a minute. So uh, James, you may be onto something there. Uh, the point being, certainly this passage in Isaiah 6 is attributed to the Son and to the Spirit I still, you know, I still think the reference in the in the text itself is to the Lord that Isaiah sees, but it is true uh, that all three persons are holy, and uh, maybe there's a hint of that. So, James, good thought. Well done. Appreciate you sharing that. Okay, so getting back to our text. So, Isaiah has this experience, and he uh, is, is undone. He is cut to the core. He realizes his sin. He pronounces, pronounces a curse on himself. God atones for that sin. And then Isaiah begins to hear the Lord speak, and the Lord says, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? There's another reason that this is, the, this is what caused me to reflect further on what James said. Uh, whom shall I send, that's singular, who will go for us? You know, who's God talking to? Maybe the Son and the Holy Spirit, or in this case, maybe this, the Son is talking to the Father and the Spirit. Anyway, that's not crucial for our purposes here. Whom shall I send? And Isaiah is like, here am I, here am I, send me. It makes me think, 
uh, when I was uh, in elementary school and uh, we'd have gym class outside and, you know, often the, the teacher, the coach would pick a couple of players for maybe a, a soccer game or something. And, uh, you know, whenever he, whenever he chose uh, one of the best athletes uh, in our school to be the captain, and then he said the captain, they can go back and forth choosing uh, players to be on their team. You know, I, I want to be on his team. I want to be, I want to be with Mike. He's, he's really good. And I think I want to be with him. It, it, it's sort of that on a much more uh, wonderful and majestic scale, right? Who shall we send? Isaiah says, send me. After what I've been through, what I've seen, I've seen your glory and you've atoned for my sins. We're reconciled. I'll go. I'll do whatever you want. It's uh, similar to Paul. Right when he's confronted with the glory of Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus. And then Jesus says, I'm going to send you on a journey, on a mission, and it's going to be hard. Um, and Paul says, yes, sir, I, I will do whatever, uh, whatever you need. Because when you really grasp the holiness of God and your own sinfulness, and that God in his sheer mercy and grace atoned for your sin and forgives you. And especially now in the new covenant, we understand the fullness of that, that the way he paid the price for our sin is by sending his own son to the cross. Anybody who truly grasps that, how can you not say, I will go where you send me. I will do what you call me to do. My life is not my life anymore. And that's, that's pretty much what Isaiah is saying. So this is the beginning of his prophetic ministry. This is his call. Uh, now you've probably heard this passage used at missions conferences right? Uh, this is a, a popular and a favorite text to go to when people are uh, being called to world missions, and rightfully so. But I wonder, as we look at the message, and even more than the message, the results that God says Isaiah is going to achieve, I wonder if anybody would ever volunteer for missions <laughs> if they were given this mission that Isaiah is sent on. Uh, it's interesting that uh, in every missions conference I've ever been to where this uh, text is used, they always stop at verse 8 and never go to verse 9. But here's what Isaiah is called to do. And, and remember, we looked in Ezekiel and we, we set this up yesterday by saying before God sends these prophets on these missions where they're going to get furious opposition, and suffer persecution. When, before God does that, he gives them these grand visions to remind them that there is something bigger, something transcendent. There is, there's a, a, a bigger power at work here than these humans. So don't be afraid of, of the men who can take your life, right? Uh, there's, a, there's, a, there's something else going on that is uh, uh, just unworthy to be compared with what you might experience by the hands of men. So he gets that vision and then he is told uh, this is the mission, Isaiah. Good morning, Salty One. Good morning, Fisher Strong. Glad you all are with us. So here's what God says to Isaiah. Go and tell this people. Keep on listening, but do not perceive. Keep on looking, but do not understand. Now just, just let that settle in for a minute. I'm going to send you. You volunteered? All right, I'm going to send you. And here's what you're going to tell them. Listen, people, keep on listening. Listen to the word. Listen to, to the message that I'm proclaiming to you. Listen, listen, listen. Keep looking. Keep, keep 
searching around and, and evaluating, scrutinizing, but don't perceive. Don't see what you're looking at. Don't grasp what it is that you're hearing. That, that, uh, that's a hard task. Um, we'll, uh, we'll explore this a little bit more here. Let's uh, go a little further. Render the hearts of this people insensitive. Literally, it's fat. Make their hearts fat. Render their ears dull or heavy so that the ears are kind of weighed down and, and can't hear. Their eyes dim, uh, besmeared, the index uh, the, the, the footnote says here. Uh, otherwise, God says, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and return and be healed. You see what God is saying here. Isaiah, go tell these people to keep looking, but don't see what you're looking at. And what I want for them, God says, is that their hearts, in, in, in the Jewish culture, the heart is not the seat of emotions like it is in our culture. The heart was pretty much everything that we'd call sort of the inner man. Thinking, will, decision-making, um, pondering, contemplating, evaluating, all those kind of things. The heart. Think of mind and will, especially. That's what the heart represented. And God says, I want this people, I want them to have minds and wills that are insensitive, that are, uh, that are big and fat and, and not lean and able to, uh, to function well. I want their eyes to not see and, and, and their ears to not hear. I want, I, I, and you, Isaiah, I'm sending you to go accomplish this. Would you sign up for that? <laughs> Do you think Isaiah at any point said, maybe uh, before I said, you know, here I am, send me, I should have uh, opened the envelope to see what the mission was, <laughs> your mission should you choose to accept it? Uh, Isaiah didn't wait to, uh, to read the mission before he accepted it. He said, yeah, I'll go, I'll do whatever you want. And then God says, all right, here's what you're going to do. Now, why is God doing this? Because as we have already seen in the first five chapters, the Jews are continuing to go down the path of idolatry, pride, great wickedness, trusting in themselves, trusting in, in their strength, their military, their wealth, all of that. And they refuse to acknowledge the Lord. They refuse to obey him. They're ignoring his law. They are a people of unclean lips and unclean ears and hearts and nose or uh, mouths, everything, eyes, they're, they're, they are hard people. And God is going to judge them. And he's going to do it gradually over time in the sense that they're going to hear the truth, see the truth, be told the truth repeatedly. And all that's going to do is render them insensitive to God's word so that they will not repent and they will be hardened and know full well they deserve God's judgment. As sobering as this is, God does not want these Jewish people to repent. He wants just the opposite. He wants them so hardened that they 
they refuse to repent. Now, this is after centuries of wickedness, right? This is not a knee-jerk reaction by God. This is not a, a simple outburst of frustration. No, this, these people have earned this over time. Well, Isaiah responds, I said, Lord, how long? How long must I do this? How long am I to, to go proclaim these things and, and have this effect on these people? And here was God's answer. Until cities are devastated and without inhabitant. Right? You keep preaching until the cities have been destroyed. No one's living there. Until houses are without people. And the land is utterly desolate. Now, if you were with us in the previous series on uh, What About Israel, we looked at Romans 9 through 11, we spent a great deal of time discussing this word desolate and its role in the, uh, the prophets and how it uh, pointed toward the fall of Jerusalem, 70 AD and all of that. This is the first fall of Jerusalem in 586 that he's talking about. The city's going to be desolate. It's going to be a ghost town. He goes on, the Lord has removed men far away and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. But like we will see over and over again in Isaiah, there's always a message of hope. Yet there will be a 10th portion in it and it will again be subject to burning. So this is interesting. I don't think this first section of verse 13 is the hope. This is the 10th portion here. That's the tithe, right? This is, this is hard. It's hard in the Hebrew and it's, it's hard to really fit. The word yet is, a tra- is an interpretation more than translation. It's just the Hebrew vav, which means and. It's a conjunction. It could be translated a bunch of different ways depending on the context. And the NAS has decided that yet, that he's, he's changing perspective here. I don't think so. I think what he's saying is, uh, the city's going to be destroyed, desolate. There will be a, a tithe. There'll be a remnant in this sense, but I don't think this tithe are saved ultimately. Notice he says it will again be subject to burning. Like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. What I wonder, and, and I don't know for sure, but what I wonder what's going on is if God is saying, I'm not going to wipe out everybody which we know is true of 586. Many were killed, but some were exiled and later returned. But they were continually under the the authority of other nations, right? After Babylon destroyed the city in 586 and they conquered the Jews. And before that, the Assyrians conquered the Northern Kingdom. Uh, After that, then of course you had the Medes and the Persians who conquered the world and therefore were ruling over the Jews. And then you had the Greeks under Alexander the Great and others who conquered the world and ruled over the Jews. And then you had the Romans, and they conquered the world and ruled over the Jews. The Jews were constantly under the rule of others, and they never became their own kingdom again. There there was a little brief period in the Maccabeans, but by and large, they they were under the, the rule of others. So there was a portion of them, but they never grew to prominence and prosperity and all of that. I wonder, this is what makes sense to me, if he is predicting the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD, that there'll be a tenth, a portion that will not be destroyed, they will carry on, but it will again be subject to burning. 
One of the reasons I stress this is uh, someone in one of the comments the other day, I think it was in comments in response to one of these videos, I forget, um, was asking me if there could be a dual fulfillment aspect to these prophecies. And that's a very popular view. Uh, we're, uh, we'll see this when we get to chapter 7 in the virgin birth. Uh, the virgin will be with a child and call his name Emmanuel and all that. Um, there's, a, there's a desire on the part of some to see a dual fulfillment of a lot of these things. Like there was a, a maiden in Isaiah's day who was not yet married and she would get married and have a child. And then that was a foreshadow of Mary, the Virgin Mary. And, and they would say the maiden in Isaiah's day didn't give birth as a virgin, that in fact she got married and got pregnant to the normal way. But at the time Isaiah said it, that she was a virgin. And then of course we know the ultimate fulfillment of that is uh, the Virgin Mary who, who hadn't known a man who became pregnant by the Holy Spirit with Jesus. Um, and, and they want to see a, a dual fulfillment there. And then the same thing with the fall of Jerusalem in 586, that uh, all of these places that we're looking at that predict the fall of Jerusalem there had a dual fulfillment in 70 AD. Maybe, maybe. That is not an unreasonable uh, view. It's very difficult to prove there's a lot of assumptions that are made in that kind of view. What I wonder is if even here, just this little glimpse, uh, though the majority of the fall of Jerusalem that is predicted in Isaiah is about the one in 586, we do see some references, at least the way the New Testament authors use them, towards 70 AD. And I wonder if this is one of them. There'll be a portion, but it will again be the subject to burning like these trees, whose stump remains when it fells. There'll be a, a portion of it uh, that will not be destroyed. Maybe. Uh, again, I'm not, not going to die on that hill, but uh, just curious, just pondering through this. Then he does give, I think, a very clear statement of hope. The holy seed is its stump. And this, again, plays into, if you were with us in the uh, What About Israel series, uh, in Jesus' day, there were, there, were, there were Jews, and there was that smaller remnant within, um, within the larger group of Jews who did obey the Messiah, who did receive justification in Christ, and that's that kind of thing. The Holy Seed here is its stump. That's, I, I think this is predicting that God will redeem some of the Jews, and we see that when Jesus comes. So this is a heavy mission. This is a hard mission that Isaiah is sent to. Not one that really anybody would volunteer to do. Not one that was pleasant. And it, it caused a great response from the Jewish leaders over Isaiah's 50 years of ministry. And they, they persecuted him. They didn't like him. They tried to run him out. They, uh, later on, he, so his, his message is very, very simple. right? He just continued to speak truth to the, to the Jews. You, you are provoking the wrath of God. You're sinning. Very simple. Uh, and they kept going all over, jumping through all kinds of intellectual hoops and, and biblical hoops to try to say that Isaiah is wrong. And Isaiah kept calling them back to the simple truth. You are committing idolatry. You're breaking the law. Here are the terms of the law. You, you deserve God's wrath and it's coming. Very simple. So simple, in fact, and he's so concise and accurate and um, and simple. You know, the best teachers bring things down to a very simple uh, level where everybody can understand the point. That's what Isaiah did, and so much we'll see in Isaiah 26. They, the people, turn on him and, and say, "You're you're like a kindergartner. You're like a a kindergarten teacher. 
you just keep repeating the ABCs, the ABCs, you're, you're not giving us anything of substance. And Isaiah's like, well, because you don't know your ABCs, you don't understand the simplest truth. You're so blind to what is right in front of your eyes that when I tell you that those idols that you are serving up in the high places, you know, the ones you carved with your own hands, those pieces of wood that you, sh- you fashioned into a God and then said, this is the Lord. You're so blind as you do that to the fact that God is, is furious with you for that idolatry. Th- those are the ABCs. Those are the simple things. You want me to teach deeper things? There is no education you need beyond this simple fact because this is going to be your end. And they mocked him and rebuked him for continuing to proclaim the ABCs. This is what God said he's going to do with Isaiah. Go and just repeat these simple things repeatedly until they're so hardened that they just can't see what's right in front of them. What's so obvious to anybody who has eyes to see or ears to hear was not obvious to these people. Now, I just said a phrase that provoked another thought in your mind, hasn't it? How many times did Jesus say to the Jews, let him who has ears hear? Right? What's he referring to? This passage. Everybody that he was talking to had a faculty of hearing. I mean, you know, almost everybody. There's probably a couple of deaf people around. We know that he healed some, but by and large, they all had faculty of hearing. They could actually bring the ears to their eardrums and understand the words he was saying, but they didn't have ears to hear because they were hardened and heavy and dull. And we will come back Monday and look and see how the Lord Jesus fulfilled the same role that Isaiah did. Now, I want to I want to wrap up with uh, something that the apostle Paul said uh, using similar language. Here's what he said to the Ephesians. So this I say and affirm together with the Lord that you, talking to Christians, walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind. Right? So he's saying the Gentiles, their minds don't work. The, the minds work for meaningless things. It's like spitting in the wind. It's, it's futile. Think about, well, I'll save the application for a moment. <laughs> Being darkened in their understanding. The Gentiles, unbelievers, their minds are focused on mu- meaningless things and, and their, uh, their minds are darkened. Their understanding is darkened. They are excluded or alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. And then here's the the key phrase, because because of the hardness of their heart. Now, here's what I want us to kind of grasp here. We, those of us who study theology, and I know many of you are grounded in systematic theology, and, and if you've been following me at all, you know that I'm sort of on a on a campaign to uh, 
break the foundations of systematic theology a bit because we tend to interpret the Bible through our presuppositions and our grids and not let the Bible say what it says. When we think about total depravity, we tend, and you may be the exception, but many people tend to think, you know, man is just as evil as he could possibly be. And uh, that sort of like we were born that way. Like people were born and their hearts, unbelievers are just as hard as they could be. And only the elect, you know, have any softness at all. That's not the way the Bible presents it. You know, at one point Jesus spoke to an unbeliever and said, you are not far from the kingdom. This hardness of heart isn't something they're born with, meaning, don't, get, don't, don't mishear me here, they don't understand the things of God. Paul tells us that in 1 Corinthians, they, they aren't able to process the spiritual things because they are spiritually appraised. Uh, the natural man can't receive them. But their hearts, they're not, people are not born with a heart that is so hardened against the things of God that there's no more hardening to do when they're born. Let me, let me see if I can show you by the next phrase here. Speaking of the same, the Gentiles here, it says, and they having become callous, see this word here, callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. This is all gradual kind of language. You see that? Becoming callous, giving themselves over, practicing impurity and greed, that kind of thing. The callous word. So I'm a guitar player and I've given hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of lessons in my, in my lifetime, especially back in my college days. And whenever a new student would come and uh, we'd have our first lesson, I would give them, you know, practice homework to do. And they'd come back the next week and they would say, oh, my fingers are killing me. My fingertips, they're like they're on fire. And they would always ask me, um, is, uh, when does that go away? Right? When, when my fingers stop hurting? And I to say, well, when you develop calluses. Well, what happens? How, how do you develop calluses? You keep inflicting that pain. You keep pressing on the strings over and over and over and over and over again until finally it becomes insensitive because it's, it's, it's like the cauterized lips of Isaiah there, right? It's hardened. And there's this, this rough, hard skin, leathery skin where there's hardly any sensation or no sensation there. It becomes callous over time. And if you, if you don't uh, play for a while, even, you know, as I've been playing for, I don't know, 40 years almost. Um, if I don't play for a while, then I pick up my guitar again. And sure enough, I got that pain to deal with until I build up the calluses. Well, that's the kind of thing that Paul uses here to describe uh, the Gentiles. They've become callous. So this is scary for the world around us. This is scary for the unbelievers that we know. As you, as you see what's happening in our world and right down the street, across the street, your friends, your family, people who maybe they claim to be Christians, but their lives don't demonstrate it. They, you know, Christianity is basically just a, 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 you go to some service on Sunday morning and go through the motions and you think you're fine, uh, or people who don't claim at all, they can become callous. The more they hear the truth and reject it, it can build up this, this hardening, this, this, this insensitivity to the truth. And that's, that's a scary proposition for people. Uh, I, I illustrate this sometimes by, um, you know, we have, my wife likes to set timers for lots of things. And, 
and then she seems to be um she doesn't have ears to hear the timers when they go off <laughs> if you know what i mean and she may be watching this and i'll probably hear about it one way or the other um you know what i mean timers going off and i'm thinking am i the only person in this whole house that hears that timer <laughs> I think is somebody going to turn that off? But what happens? You, you set or or notifications right on your phone. You set up notifications for all kinds of things to to alert you when it's time to do something. But then if you train yourself not to pay attention to those, oh yeah, I need to do that, and then you you dismiss the notification and go on about your day. What happens? Well, the next next time those notifications pop up, they no longer are this screaming call to action, right? You you sort of have. Uh, diluted them, you, you've made them worthless. And then eventually you can have hundreds, dozens of, of notifications on your phone and you still forget to do everything you're supposed to do because you have taught, trained yourself to ignore. You've become callous and insensitive to those notifications. They don't serve that purpose anymore of reminding you, hey, I need to do something now. That's why you set it up in the first place. I need to do something. When this goes off, I need to do something. But you train yourself to ignore them. Well, that's, that's what people do. They, they train themselves to ignore the truth of God. I, I was walking this morning. It was just a gorgeous morning, perfect temperature. Sun was coming up and the moon was bright in, uh, in the sky and the, the sun was, was shining brilliantly on the moon and it was so, the, the moon was so bright and then eventually the sun made its way up and it was just glorious and uh, shining on the mountains and uh, it was just one of those spectacular uh, experiences. And I was, I was singing how great thou art. I couldn't help it out there on the trail by myself, not too loud. So I didn't uh, wake up everybody and make them mad. And I was thinking, you know, I had this passage ringing in my ears and I was thinking how many people see this same kind of glorious display of God's power and creation, but they have told themselves for so many years, this is a result of evolution. This is the result of an accident. There is no purpose to this. There's no designer of this. They've told themselves that over and over again to such a degree that they just are incapable. They are so calloused and insensitive to the truth that uh, we look at that. I look at that and think, how can you not proclaim the glory of God by seeing this? But it's because they don't have ears to hear. They're hardened. So just something to think about as we uh, as we look at our world and think, yeah, they're uh, they're impervious to the truth of God. Many of them because they've told themselves lives repeatedly. All right, I see a couple comments here. Let me uh, let me jump on here. Genesis, would you please give the reference again in John you gave earlier? Uh, John chapter twelve, um, verses uh, starting about uh, verse thirty-seven, thirty-eight in there, and then uh, yeah. So John chapter twelve. And Grateful says, I don't understand. Is Jesus coming in real time soon and setting up the kingdom of heaven to earth? Yeah, that is a great question. Um, that's a much bigger question than I can get into here. Uh, that's part of what, uh, what we're trying to sort through as we study this and other passages. Um, when we did our What About Israel study, that led to lots of discussion about the uh, fall of Jerusalem in 70 A.D., and the coming, and so on, and what exactly, there's a lot of references, I believe, there are a lot of references in the New Testament that are not about the return of Christ, though they are often interpreted that way, that are actually about the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD. But that doesn't mean, I don't believe that they're all about the 70 AD. I believe there are, Jesus is coming, he is returning, 
And as far as what the kingdom looks like now versus what the kingdom will look like then, uh, I'm still sorting through that. And so part of the reason we're going through Isaiah is he's got some things to contribute to that uh, discussion. And uh, I want to try to figure some of it out. So glad you're on the journey with us. And maybe I'll have an answer for you from my perspective down the road. <laughs> maybe you'll formulate your own. Maybe you already have your own. Uh, but yeah, that's a great question. And we're, we're trying to figure that out. Uh, all right. Folks, have a great weekend. Rejoice in the Lord. He made this day. It's a good day. Until uh, Monday, take care.